Feeling sort of festive today. I almost feel like we should just talk about whatever we want to talk about today. <laughs> Those little lambs and the squeaky wheels get me every year. Um, all right, let, let me read to you from the Valley of Vision again and as we land the plane of this little four-week series. This, this prayer is entitled, Christ the Word. My Father, in a world of created, changeable things, Christ and His Word alone remain unshaken. Oh, to forsake all creatures, to rest as a stone on Him the foundation, to abide in Him, to be borne up by Him. For all my mercies come through Christ, who has designed, purchased, promised, He's affected them. How sweet it is to be near Him, the Lamb, filled with holy affections. When I sin against Thee, I cross Thy will, love life, and have no comfort or no creature to go on. My sin is not so much this or that particular evil, but my continual separation and disunion and distance from Thee, and having a loose spirit towards Thee, but Thou hast given me a present, Jesus Thy Son. If I receive the Word, I receive my Lord, wherein He is nigh. O Thou who hast the hearts of all men in Thy hand, Form my heart according to the Word, according to the image of Thy Son. So shall Christ the Word and His Word be my strength and my comfort. Amen. So Lord, in this season of Advent, I do pray that You will light in our hearts, Lord, even where there are just flickering flames, that You would blow by the gift of Your Holy Spirit onto our hearts and and enliven our affections for You. Um, I know that my own affections get dulled so often in my my relationship with you, O oh God, and I ask that you would, during this season, give us those sweet moments of just allowing and being graced by your presence to fan a flame of hope and joy and delight in you. Lord, I think everyone in this room, at least all the ones that I know, understand that we're lost without you, that the gospel is true as it pertains to us and to the world. We all know that. We affirm it. We confess it week in and week out. We hold on to it with our lives. And yet, I also ask, O oh God, that you would let us be filled with holy affection for you. That we would know what it is to delight in you. That we would allow the reality of the gospel to well up in us, Lord, springs of eternal hope and joy. And that if you will do that kind of thing, O oh Lord, that it would bubble over into the ways in which we love others. And so we're asking for that kind of thing in this season. We know it's true. But I pray, Lord, that the truth and the reality of it for us would grow deeply in our own hearts and our souls and our minds, and that it would, as you promised, spring up in us like a well of everlasting life. And we ask these things in Advent hope, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, well, last day, um, I wanted to do two lessons today, but I'm going to resist the urge, because I know it won't happen. Um, so I, but I did want to give a little, this hit me as I was thinking about our Advent series. Um, and so I want to just give a little illustration from Joseph and then jump into the Psalms a little bit this morning. Um, but here's the illustration from Joseph, you know, again, kind of giving you this panoramic view of what we've been doing together. And what we've been doing is thinking about the textured character of the Old Testament in its advent shape and scope. And what we mean by that is 
that the Old Testament itself, really in its entirety, is framed in such a way as to bring us to the precipice of God's promises. Like, like um, Moses on the plains of Moab. I mean, here we are. There's the promised land. And we see that God has promised that. And we even see it in palpable and real way, tangible ways. But we don't go in. We're, we're sort of still on the plains of Moab. And you know, so we've been making a claim that really the whole of the Old Testament itself from beginning to end is shaped and formed in that way uh, to bring us to a point of going, now there's got to be more here to the story. The, the, the credits roll uh, too quickly. So there's a sense in which the whole of the Old Testament itself is, oh, for lack of a better term, eschatologized. I, I'm not a, you know, don't, don't bandy that about at cocktail parties. But um, it's, it's been shaped in such a way as to lean forward toward the future in hope. It's, it's promise. Um, in the language of Karl Barth, um, Karl Barth describes the Old Testament as... Um, Desite der Erwartung, the time of anticipation. Um, it's anticipation time. It's hope time. That's what um, the Old Testament uh, is. Now, so we've been looking at that. And we started three weeks ago with Abraham, and then we went to Isaiah, and then we did Jeremiah. But I wanted to just kind of sneak back to Abraham just for a second, because it dawned on me as I was thinking about this sort of advent nature of the Old Testament. The fact, again, that we're... We're waiting for the promises of God to be made good on. And we started with Abraham. Well, why, what's so fascinating about Abraham? Well, Abraham, you know, has this call from God on his life in Genesis chapter 12, and he leaves everything uh, to do it, to follow that call. And jokingly, we raised in that, our first lesson together the, the psychological and philosophical problems that are attendant to that. I mean, it's like, well, how, what, what happened? I mean, can you imagine, you know, him going to his wife, Sarah, and saying, um, you, know, you know, sell a lot of stuff because we're, we're heading out tomorrow and we're going to take everything with us, our whole household. And, and her, so why are we doing that? Well, because God told me to last night. Well, what's his name? Not quite sure yet, actually, what his name is. I got to wait for the development of the biblical narrative. He didn't say that, right? But no, I got to I got to wait, you know, to know what his name is. But he told me, and we're going to go. And I mean, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge problem to sort of think through why why Abraham would actually do this. But but he does, and he goes, and he follows God's promises, and he never experiences the fullness of those promises in the frame of his own life. They're forward-looking. Now, if you've spent time in Genesis, you've maybe noticed this before, right? So the book of Genesis is broken up between what we call the primeval history, Genesis 1 to 11, and then what's called the patriarchal history, which is Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 50. Some of you have done Bible studies, and you're very familiar with that, those particular de demarcators, or literary demarcators. Um, and so what's the move? Well, you move from the patriarchal, I mean, the primeval history, which in, ends in the Tower of Babel, then you begin with Abraham, and then you move through the whole Abraham cycle. And what's the Abraham cycle? Abraham has a son, and it's Isaac, and then Isaac has two sons, they're Jacob and they're Esau, and, and that gets to be a raucous ride of a, of a, of a narrative. And, and then uh, Jacob has 12, you know, he has, remember the big trick that happens to him? I mean, their whole lives are Advent-like, they're a mess. Um, I mean, the, Genesis is the stuff of Southern literature. I mean, it's, a, that's a, it's, that, it's just a, um, Walker Percy when he won the, the the book prize, the National Book Prize for his book, book the Movie Goer, 
Apparently he was on the Today Show, I think 1962 or 63, and someone asked him, so why, why are Southern writers so good? And Percy's answer was, because we lost the, 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 the war. Right? Anyway, um, so, uh, you know, so, so you had this, you know, Jacob is about to marry, um, uh, he wants to marry Rachel, and then he gets hoodwinked at his own wedding. I mean, it's a really bad moment. It's like Leah, it's like, ah! Right? And then, then he goes for seven more years, and he, then he gets Rachel, and, and it doesn't work out to plan. I mean, Leah's fertile. Remember, this is, we talk, we've talked about this through, through our time together, um, you know, the, the whole imagery of, of barrenness and infertility, and how God pushes on that neurologic nerve uh, throughout the Old Testament. And it's, it's a painful nerve. And I would say um, it's painful from a social perspective in the Old Testament in ways that maybe even beyond our own understanding. But, I mean, to not have children, to not have progeny is to not have... I mean, it's just not good. I'm sorry about this, ladies. But in that world, it's not to have a being. I mean, that's it's horrible to say that, but that's that's the depth of what. That's why Hannah is like a drunken woman, you know, in the in the temple, begging God to give her a son. Just please give me a son. Um, and so here's Rachel, and she's the she's the wife of promise, but she's not able to have children. And here's Leah, the the one that they got hoodwinked for, and she's I mean, she's she's like a rat, rabbit. That wasn't very political. Um, but it's just children everywhere. Um, and 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 then she has a child, and of course the, you know the the internal sibling rivalry that goes on in that story is is painful. Um, you know, Isaac, um, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Jacob did not go to um, parenting class very well. You know, I mean, uh, and and so here he is. He dotes all of his his love on to to Joseph, and the other brothers go to hate him. Um, uh, so Isaac, and the, anyway, so you have Isaac and Joseph. so well, what ends up happening in the story? Well, it all culminates with the Joseph story. Isn't fascinating? And a lot of time is given to the Joseph story. Matter of fact, that's something when you're reading the, your Bibles that you can m- maybe sort of clue into or think about. The ways, the way in which the Bible will slow down at places. Normally, the Bible is known for being terse and very, very um, uh, strategic in its use of language as it gives you narratives and stories. You, you more often than not, you always want more. This is like that is not enough. You know, Mount Moriah, Isaac, and and Abraham going up to the mountain, and it's like, I, I need a lot more with this text right here because. The emotional impact of what's going on just doesn't seem to be all that of interest to the narrator. It's like, I want more. And um, if you remember years ago, they did this sort of Bible drama thing on TV. It wasn't very good, I didn't think. But they did this Bible drama thing. And how did they spice that up? There's, you know, there's a, uh, um, uh, I, uh, a Sarah down at the bottom of Mount Moriah screaming at Abraham not to do it. Right. <laughs> And you, actually, in the movie, and that was a great dramatic choice for the why because the Bible's quite not good enough really um, in comparison to these things. Um, so all to say, the Bible will slow down in places, and it's good as a reader to be attendant to that. Now, why why is it slowing down here? And the Joseph story gets a long, um, several chapters worth of reflection on the story of Joseph, and it raises the question why. Um, it is a good story, of course, right? And you know the story of Joseph. I mean, here's Joseph, who's the favorite son, and then he ends up being killed, and he's sold off, or not good, fake killed, and then he's sold off into slavery, and, and he ends up in, in the house of Potiphar. And so he's, I mean, and what do you have with Joseph's story? Ascending and descending. Can I put it in the frame of our Advent language? You have in the story of Joseph death and rebirth again and again. 
death, rebirth, death, and then another rebirth. And so he's in Potiphar's house. He's in charge of Potiphar's house. He's, he's in a very important position. Potiphar's wife, you know, the whole thing. I mean, I, we used to sing little moralistic songs about, um, you know, you know, Joseph and Potiphar and sexual temptation and all that kind of thing. Put, one of those songs was, oh, it's embarrassing to even say that we sang these things. But, um, put on your running shoes. Was one of the, yeah. So, you know, Joseph puts on his running shoes and he runs away from Potiphar's wife and, and then, she, then she throws him under the bus. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great stuff. Um, but then, but that's not a good enough question answer, I think, to why the Joseph narrative gets as much airtime as it does in the book of Genesis. And I, I, I think it's sort of dawned on me over the past few years, thinking through the structure of Genesis, to this conclusion. When you get to the end, and all of a sudden you see Joseph, who's this Hebrew boy, who, whose lineage goes back all the way to Abraham himself, not too far back, his great-grandpa, right? So he goes back to great-grandpa Abraham. And here is Abraham's great-grandson on the throne in Egypt, saving the known world at the time. That's God making good on His promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that through your seed I will bless the entirety of the world. So here you come and you have this promise. In other words, the promise that's given in Genesis 12, we already see it proleptically fulfilled in a very tangible way in the Joseph narrative right there in Genesis. Here is one of Abraham's children, his offspring, his seed, on the throne in Egypt, protecting the known world at the time, at the ages of power, right? There on the throne in in Egypt. And that's, but, but, but this is what struck me about that. God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham in the story of Joseph, because that's what's happening here, it's moving toward that, is itself a fulfillment that's riddled with Advent tension. There's this, it's not, um, it, it's, it's, it's not a, a kind of golden street that ends up at a golden throne. It's a bumpy, torturous ride through snow and sleet and difficulty and hurricanes and tornadoes and then all of a sudden now we've gotten to that point. In other words, the fulfillment of God's promise, even in proleptic form to Abraham that manifests itself in the Joseph narrative itself is seen to be marked with Advent tension. The fulfillment of God's promises are marked with Advent tension in the story of Joseph himself. And of course, this is where you begin to see the Joseph narrative linking itself to the larger narrative of the Bible where God makes good on his promises through Abraham's seed and the person and work of, of Jesus. So I, 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 that was, that's all introduction. It's freebie. I don't even know what time. What time is it? <laughs> oh, we got plenty of time. Um, that, that was the other lesson I wanted to do, but I really want to do the Psalms. Is that okay? We do you want to ask any questions about that before we go on? Any questions about the Abraham Genesis stuff or just life in general you want to talk about? Bueller? Okay. Um, well, then let's look at the Psalms real fast. The Psalms in Advent. And I want to look at this from a macro perspective real fast. The Psalms, I think have a deep connection with Advent. And the critical listener out here right now is going, now remember, Genelette, you titled this, this series Old Narratives, right? Um, so we're not in narrative right now, we're in the Psalms. Well, hold on, I'm going to try to make a case for this. It might not be successful. I'm going to try to make some sort of case. 
Um, listen to this reading here out of Psalm 102 from John Calvin. Sort of deep connection between the Psalms and Advent itself. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. And here you go throughout this whole psalm here, this psalm of complaint that moves through the tension that God's people felt related to the kingdom of God and the promises about that kingdom actually being manifest in real time. And I wanted to read you a comment that John Calvin made about this particular psalm because I actually think it's pretty Advent-related. All right. So this is what Calvin says as a comment on this psalm. And I, I don't want to get too lost in this, but I think it will give you a sense of the sort of Advent scope of the Psalter. This is what Calvin says. Although the church had perished... Now, I, I shouldn't stop, but I'm going to. Do notice how Calvin can read the Psalter in reference to the church without any interpretive white noise. In other words, he doesn't, Calvin doesn't have to put the interpretive clutch in and shift in some way in his reading of the Bible to move from the Psalms right into the very life of the church itself. He doesn't have to do that. He just, he, this, there's an immediate reference to the life of the church off the pages of the Psalter. Bury that somewhere because we're going to come back to that. So he says, although the church had perished, he, that is the psalmist, was persuaded that God, by his wonderful power, would make her rise again from death to renovated life. He says, this is a remarkable passage showing that the church is not always to be preserved as it appears to survival externally. But that when she seems to be dead, is suddenly created anew. Wherever it pleases God. Let no desolation, therefore, which befalls the church deprive us of the hope. Um, this, as once God created the world out of nothing, so it is proper work to Him to bring forth the church from the darkness of death to the renewal of life. This is Calvin seeing Psalm 102 itself as, and he didn't use this language, we'll borrow it, as Advent-like. In other words, it's the character of God to take things that are seemingly dead and to breathe new life into them. It's the character of God to take His promises which seem to be but faint memories from the past with little relevance to the exigencies of our current moment and make good on them in surprising ways both now and in the future. That's the character of God to do that. So the Psalter is Advent-like from the beginning to the end. It has that kind of movement to it. I, I wanted to take a macro look at the Psalter with you this morning and think about the way in which the whole book is structured um, from the beginning to the end, uh, which should make you nervous given our time. Um, but the way in which the whole Psalter is structured as itself indicating the narrated existence of both Israel and David, and the church, and Jesus, 
in our own lives. There's a lot to claim here, right? But I'm, make, I'm making a claim, I'm asserting something, that the shape of the Psalter, the way in which the 150 chapters of Psalms have been put together, itself witnesses to the shape of Israel's existence, of David's existence, of Jesus' existence, and and our very own. All right, so I wanted to... Is there chalk over there? Well... Oh, where are you, chalk? I need... Okay, here we go. Can you see this? Uh, some of you have heard this before. It's not new. Um, but, you know, here you go. So have you ever noticed in your Bibles, like if you look at... Um, turn, if you have like your Bible, look at the beginning of Psalm 43. It'll say, uh, it says book 2. So if you have the, 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 the Psalter is built in a five-book structure. All right. Uh, book 1. It's Psalms 1 to 41. All right? Um, I actually think Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the thematic head of the whole of the Psalter, but I won't, I won't go into that. Two. So really, I should probably put um, 3 to 41. I think 1 and 2 are their own beasts, but that's okay. Uh, 2 is 42 to 72. Now, some of you heard this before, so this is, this is not new. Um, there's a there's a bizarre verse at the end of Psalm 72 that says, "And now the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, have ended." And you're like, uh, "Okay." And then you turn a few pages and you see another Davidic psalm, and you go, "Houston, we've got an interpretive problem here, because the psalms of David, son of Jesse, have not ended." Well, hold on to that. Okay. Then book three. Is 73 to 89. I'll go up here. Book 4 is 80, oops, sorry, 90 to 106. And then book 5 is 107 to 150. Have you ever noticed that before? I mean, some of you have had a song class with me, so you've seen this, but is this, have you seen this before in your Bibles? Um, th- these are like if you have the ESV or the NIV, uh, whatever Bible you carry around, they'll 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 demarcate these for you. Book one, book two, and, and what do the five books look like? Oh, what else is a five book structure in the Old Testament? The Pentateuch, right? So here you have the Psalms and the way in which the Psalter has been shaped and put together itself, reflecting a kind of Pentateuchal structure. It's meant to resemble. The five books of Moses. Well, what's another term that we use for the five books of Moses? Torah, or instruction. So in other words, the five books of, of, of the Psalter are themselves given to us in that structure to tell us that these are not merely human words to God. This is also God's word to humanity in such a way that it's Torah. The Psalter is Torah. It's, it's instruction. And, and you say, instruction in what? Well, you know. Instruction in what it means to live all of life in God's presence. This is what, what's, what it's about. All of life in God's presence. But there's more to this here, I think. Now, I could change my mind on this. Right? This, is a, this is a bit of an interpretive push, but I, I don't think it's... The, the, the smarter people think this is the case, so you know, take it up with them. Um, but I also think there's a narrative move that's going on here. This is where we get to our narrative point. 
These psalms here heavily emphasize David. All right? So there's a heavy focus of a Davidic view in the first two books of the Psalter. When you get to the third book right, of the Psalter, um, you get into the darkest area of the Psalter. In fact, the only lament psalm in all of the Old Testament that does not end in praise is Psalm 88. Now, every lament psalm will say, you know, God, you've really you've wounded me, or my enemies are oppressing me, and I'm angry at you. Deliver me, or else they're going to mock your name. I mean, they have this sort of back and forth between God and the psalmist. But how do every one of them end with a verse like this? But I will trust in your unfailing love. But I will da 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 da. Right? Well, not Psalm 88. You know what Psalm 88? The last verse of Psalm 88 is, "And the darkness is my closest friend." Period. And I was like, Woof. A bad. Right? So here you have it, right? Book three gets dark. And then when you get to book four, some will argue that the editorial heart of the Psalter, the Psalms 95 to 100, and what's the emphasis of those Psalms? Is there any better chalk up here? I'll go with this one. Here it is Yahweh is king. And then how does the psalm end? Praise. Alright, so you start moving into the fifth book of the Psalter and you move toward praise. And it's the kind of unplugged praise that can make, you know, Episcopalians like nervous. Um, I mean, they're like really excited about Jesus here. Um, so anyway, that, that wasn't very nice to you all. But um, Alright, so... Uh, so what, 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 do, what do I think is going on here? Well, I do think that there's a narrative. The narrative when you come to Psalm 72, right before book 3, and it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, have ended. I don't think that's a claim about the Psalter per se. In other words, there's no more Psalms of David. It's a claim, it's a narratival claim. It's a claim about the coming to the end of the hope of the Davidic promises. Our hope for a Davidic king seems to have come unraveled. Well, what does this mirror in Israel's history? It mirrors the monarchy that then moves into the divided kingdoms of the north and the south that then move into what? The destruction of the northern kingdom and the eventual destruction of the southern kingdom and no Davidic king is on the throne. And that raises the question, well, what about 2 Samuel 7? What about the promise that you made to David that there would always be one of his seed on the throne? Well, that's the darkness that's experienced in book 3. That's why you have Psalm 73. To my mind, Psalm 73 is the hinge around which the whole of the Psalter moves around. And what's the, what's the crux of Psalm 73? I know what your promises are. I just don't believe they're true. I just don't believe they're true. At least they're not true for me. And, I, and this was coming from a priest, Asaph, in the temple. And, and, and we can sort of move this into the Davidic promises. I know you've made a promise about David, but that's just not true. Because we're in darkness now. Which then moves in time to where? To book four. And what's the emphasis of book four? Well, here's how God's going to make good on his Davidic promise to always have one on the throne. Yahweh himself has always been king. And if I can make a Trinitarian claim, and Yahweh's identity has the second person of the Trinity linked to him from eternity, and that's where the Davidic promises in Yahweh's own self will ultimately be actualized and fulfilled.
Lo, He comes. He's coming. Now that's the language. I, I love that we we do, we do this in the in the in the um, in the Venita here, right? Because the Psalm 95 has that sort of lo, He's coming. The King is coming. All that language about coming is all embedded in Psalm 95 to 100. And then where does the Psalter eventually move to unending and unceasing praise? So the whole of the Psalter, it's a macro structure, right? It's a macro structure, reveals to us the history of Israel. It reveals to us the history of David. I mean, this was David's existence as well. And John Calvin, in his interpretation of Psalm, the Psalms, really presses into that sort of Davidic notion that, in, in Calvin's terms, reveals the anatomy of all the parts of our souls. Um, but you also have here something that's indica- indicating for us the history and the existence of Jesus. Here's a million-dollar word that comes from the early church. And you read it, especially in the second-century theologian named Irenaeus. Irenaeus talks about recapitulation. Right? It's, just such a, it's a big term, and, and theologians like love to bandy around big terms to hide, around, to hide behind um, unsophisticated concepts. I should say that. It was my own people. But, um, um, so you know, yeah, what, what's recapitulation? It's the notion that the entirety of the history of the world, but particularly the history of Israel, has been recapitulated, relived, reinaugurated, reactualized in the movements of the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus takes that history of Adam. He takes that history of Israel. He takes that history of wilderness wandering and failure. And he recapitulates all of that in his own existence. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the Psalms says, when you read the Psalms, the first question to ask is, what do these Psalms have to do with Jesus? The second question that you ask is then, derivatively, what do they have to do with me? Right. That's not our basic instinct, I don't think. But I think Bonhoeffer was right at least in a general sense. We want to raise the question, well, what does the Psalter have to do with Jesus? Well, when we look at this macro structure, we see what it has to do with Jesus. We see the movement from the promise, the Davidic promise. And that is all the language that is attached to Jesus' nativity. Kings are coming to see Him. Shepherds are worshiping Him. He is the hope of the Davidic king on the throne. And this is what causes His disciples to go into a tailspin. The promised Davidic king who had come was going to eradicate our enemies and we still got Romans clotting around here. This can't be right. You can't be the promise as we understood it, but he is the promise of David that then leads into the darkness of exile. Well, of course, what do we see in that? We see that as the darkness of of Jesus' own passion where again, he's taking Israel's exile unto himself. He's taking Israel's suffering unto Himself. He's taking the suffering of humanity unto Himself in that moment of the lived experience of the third book of the Psalter as Jesus Himself in Gethsemane and on the cross can say Psalm 88 without any hesitation. Yes, the darkness has become my closest friend. In this moment of dereliction, there is no God. There is no Father interfacing with me. There, and, and by the way, we do not know what's going on here. 
metaphysically, it is beyond our ability to weave together proper sentences to describe what it means for God to be separated from God. We, we just don't know how to, we just have to put our hands over our mouth and speak in terms of negation about what it cannot be, but to speak about it positively, about what it is, it is it's just beyond our pay grade to know what it means for God to be separated from God. But it's happening, right? The darkness is His closest friend. Even the world itself intimates that by responding with earthquakes and darkness itself. In other words, the, 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 the book three of the Psalter that Jesus figures into in His own life, the whole of the created order is involved in the drama, right, of what's going on there. So then, what do we do in book four? Right, now we see the resurrection, the promise that Yahweh is king, the promise that the Davidic promises have been made good in this particular person, the shock of shocks that death could not hold him down. And again, this is the whole nature of the Psalter. God takes what looks like death, what looks like exile, complete and total loss, and He breathes life into it. That's the character of God in the Old Testament. It's the character of God in the New Testament. And then what's the end result of all of that? The movement toward unending and ceaseless praise. Um, apparently, Robert Jensen, one of America's—he's—he's he's not well. Apparently, one of America's leading theologians um, did a lecture or a paper at some conference on heaven, and um, at the end of the paper, instead of giving a conclusion, he asked for a Bach fugue to be played, and he said, "The reason why I want that to happen is because I don't think my words will do justice to what." Heaven is the best that we can get at in our current lived experience is the experience of music. Um, by the way, there's there's philosophical weight behind that. Um, Arthur Schopenhauer, who was a kind of doleful character from the late 19th mid to late 19th century, he raised the classic Greek Greek question: Is life worth living? And his answer was no, it's not, except for one moment. And what's the one moment where we can transcend our lived experiences of disappointment, failure, frustration, and boredom? Those are his terms, right? Real boredom. The, the answer that he gives is when we experience music, right? When the experience of music is something that allows us to, for, for just a moment to transcend the, the earthy character of our lived existence. And that seems to be something, that, there's something to that, right? Um, and, and, and there's something to it in the Psalter. Because how does the Psalter end? With drums and trumpets and banjos and I don't know, whatever else you want to bring to the party, but that's it's music. Because we've gotten to a place where a normal mode of discourse, normal words and propositional, propositional sentences that are built on one another, that, that doesn't do justice to the enormity of what is really being experienced. And that's where the Psalter goes. So when you think about the Psalms, and how it mirrors Israel's life and mirrors Jesus' own existence, we also see how it mirrors our own. It's our existence. From the tensions of promise and fulfillment, because that's what you have right there before you, the Psalter. Books 1 and 2 are promise. Books 4 and 5 are in their own ways fulfillment. And then there's book 3 right in the middle. And most of us live in the realities of book three, in both the joys and the sorrows of our existence. We live in that place, looking back to the promises and forward to the fulfillment. And every once in a while, we get those lightning flashes that indicate for us, even in this world, that that's true. And we thank God for it. You know, a great Christmas evening, 
a, a concert out with friends, a, a, a good date night with the wife, right? The kids actually respond with respect. I mean, it's like, oh, the kingdom is among us, right? Um, that kind of thing where you see these, and they're all indications, even as we live in book three, that book four and book five are coming, that they're there. They're, they're little, little lightning flashes of, of hope for the, the future fulfillment where all we know is music. That's all we're going to know is music and unending praise. So in this Advent season, as you sort of think about these things and maybe dive into the Psalter a little bit, this is Jesus' life that gives us the ability to narrate our own stories. Because I don't know how you narrate your story, but we tend to do it by introspection. And what the Bible forces us to do is to narrate our story by looking out and finding our plot and our narrative in the lived story of another. And that's where joy and hope come, I think, in this season. All right? Thank you for the book of Psalms, Lord. It is rich and profound and shaped, Lord, in such a way to mirror the movement of our own lives, both micro, everyday existence, and on the macro level. And we know that we're in book three, Lord. And Lord, book three's got all kinds of wonderful psalms of thanksgiving and praise and happiness. I don't want to be overly doleful here, Lord. But at the same time, we do know the realities of our lived world that we cannot escape ourselves and we cannot escape our status as sinners ever in this world. And so there's always a longing for you to make things right and to make good, Lord, on your promises that we know you will because Jesus is raised from the dead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.